be God's people. So, does anyone remember July 1st, 1967? Anyone alive then? There's a few of us. I don't remember July 1967, but I was around. But some of you might remember. Uh, I'm told it was a nice summer day, July 1st in Ottawa. And a crowd of 25,000 people. I'm not sure if that's exactly the picture of 25,000. It could be. And they gathered in the nation's capital for Canada's 100th birthday, right? Centennial, 1967. And there was like an expo going on, I think, in Montreal, I think. So Canada turned 100 years old. And a celebration began that day with a prayer service carried on national television. The crowds, various dignitaries gathered, including key political leaders, the Prime Minister, the Cabinet, the Senate, and of course Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, when she was very young, came with her husband, Prince Philip. And she arrived on stage and she was escorted by and greeted by eight members of the clergy. The service consisted of a reading from the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 to 14, on living godly lives in the world. And the scripture was read by the Prime Minister, Lester B. Pearson himself. And then Christian hymns were sung. And there were prayers, and then there was including a confession of prayer of the nation. And of course, the Lord's Prayer was recited and offered. A litany was also recited, and those who gathered were invited to respond with the words, We rededicate ourselves to you, Lord. So this is back and forth. And so on that day, it was clear that there was a message that this country was a religious nation and their faith was Christianity. So obviously, we don't live in 1967 anymore, do we? In an article in 2004 by Harold O.J. Brown, he's a theologian, and he points to the many changes in America, and I, he's an American, sorry about that, but we assume it's Canadian culture as well. He says this, much of the nation has, has been or has recently become, in a sense, anti-Christian and implicitly or explicitly pagan, and pagan simply means godless. Many other Christian theologians and pastors are writing about living in a post-Christian era today. And some offer warnings, and uh, like Brown. Others, like Australian author Mark Sayers, uh, speaks about the same concerns, but he's a little more positive, actually. And from his book, Reappearing Church, he asks, what if the rise of secularism is good news for the church? Interesting perspective. Uh, He's just simply making observations from history where renewal and revival often follows uh, periods of spiritual decline. 
So there's lots to think about, lots to pray about. So maybe today you're feeling discouraged and you feel the weight of a secular world. Maybe you're overwhelmed by what's happening in our world. And I think by now, unless you live under a rock, most Christians in North America and Europe and throughout the world do know we live in a post-Christian era. 1967 is long, long behind us. But I think the real question for us today, Christians today, that we should be asking is, how do we continue to live faithfully? How do we faithfully live out our faith in Jesus in this post-Christian world, in a world that still does not know Jesus? How do we do this faithfully and well? Because I think that's the sticky point. I'm not sure sometimes we do it very well. So lots to think about. Lots to pray about. Now to help us, I want to spend some time in 1 Peter, a letter of 1 Peter. And I'm calling it uh, the series Living as Exiles in a World that Needs Jesus. I used to call... Um, a theme for First Peter. I've preached actually from First Peter probably twelve years ago. Here, this is a, this is I'm doing it again. But um, I used to call it you know living as Christians in a secular world. But I decided to put a positive spin on it. This is a world who needs Jesus, right? Well, we already know it's secular, but we need to know the heart of what. God is saying through Peter. And his concern, and unique, I think Peter is very unique. Um, it's not like the other epistles don't talk about living as witnesses. They do. But First Peter is very much focused on living faithful lives in a pagan culture. That is his focus. So, Apostle Peter, one of the disciples, he wrote this letter to the Christians living in Asia Minor. And that's basically modern Turkey today. And they were basically living in a world that was pagan. It was multicultural. It was multi-religious, sometimes hostile against believers. And we know that after this letter, there was ramped up persecution. They were already going through it, but it even got worse. And perhaps in some places of the world, and in subtle ways and in different ways, we're already facing persecution right here in Canada. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. And we're going to begin with the short introduction. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, scattered throughout all the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ, Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now this introduction is brief, 
but it's loaded. Every word, every phrase has significance for the church. And so Peter is letting you know in his introduction where he's going in his letter. First of all, we learn about Peter. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the question is, well, what is an apostle? Apostle literally means messenger. But of course, if you learn from the Gospels, Jesus gives a deeper and richer meaning to the word apostle because he calls his disciples apostles. This is Luke 6.13. These disciples of Jesus, after the Spirit descended upon them and birthed the church, they began to function as God's authoritative apostles and leaders in the church. And they had significant spiritual authority on the same level as Old Testament prophets. So not everyone could just simply be an apostle. They were appointed and chosen by God. And so Paul, or sorry, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Men like Peter, men like John, and eventually, of course, we know Paul, who met Christ on the Damascus Road, are all apostles. And they were the only ones who could speak and write down the very words of God, which became, of course, our New Testament eventually. And thank God, as you study 1 Peter, you can meditate on this letter knowing that it carries the authoritative words of God for right living. Isn't that awesome? You can trust these words for right living. In this letter, Peter is concerned about who we are, especially in this strange world that the Christians find themselves in. Right? Sometimes we have to be reminded. Do you know who you really are? Because sometimes you just get beat up and downtrodden. People have to be reminded who you really are. Who were these people? Who, we are, who are we as Christians? Well, first of all, Peter begins with the word chosen. We are God's chosen. God's elect, another word for chosen, exiles scattered throughout all the provinces, and of course he lists those provinces. So what Peter does is he launches in and he identifies the believers, and what he does is he uses Old Testament vocabulary. Old Testament words once described the covenant people of God, Israel. And now in 1 Peter, we learn a whole bunch about what it means to be followers of Jesus through Old Testament vocabulary. And so I think um, only Galatians tops 1 Peter in terms of its references back to the Old Testament. 1 Peter is chock full of Old Testament words and images, but they're lively. And they give meaning to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So, let me give you an example. Israel was often called God's chosen people, were they not? Right? They were God's chosen people. They were also a nation that was scattered. They were scattered to other nations. They lived as exiles. Right? So those three words. Boom, boom, boom. Chosen, scattered, exiles now applied to the church. 
Exiles, you could say, you could use the English word foreigners or strangers. And Israel was living in a pagan land in Babylon and Persia and Assyria and Egypt. But of course, Peter now is talking to the church. He's not referring to ancient Israel anymore. He's simply borrowing Old Testament words to help us understand our own unique identity as followers of Jesus. Now, of course, not everything is the same as before. Peter is simply drawing from Old Testament words and language and applies it to a new people of God in a brand new situation. So he's writing to people living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Israel of the Old Testament were exiled and scattered because of their sin, right? You remember their history? But now in 1 Peter, he is referring primarily to Gentile Christians who often face persecution, but not because of their sin. Right? It's a different situation altogether. But still he likes to use this word, scattered, exiles, chosen. And they're scattered and they're getting beaten down. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So today, God's chosen are God's, is God's multicultural church scattered throughout this globe. And we learn a lot about the significance of being the chosen church through Israel's own history. They were a chosen nation because of God's covenant grace. They were born, of course, as you know, in slavery and oppression. Sovereignly, God brought them there, right, into Egypt. But after a few hundred years, they became slaves And they knew pagan gods and even followed these pagan gods. They were stuck in slavery. Literal slavery and spiritual slavery. But God called them out of Egypt, as the story goes, rescuing them through God's mighty works and miraculous powers and his covenantal grace, not because they were impressive, because they were not impressive at all. And in a similar way, we, the church, are also called the chosen, the elect, not because we were impressive. We were chosen followers of Jesus because we were drawn in by the sovereign hand of God through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and we responded in faith to God's gracious and powerful initiative through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension. So to be chosen, to be God's elect, means to receive God's grace and not about our initiative. He called us by his love and his grace that prompted our faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to which true believers respond in faith and obedience. Now I just dumped on you a whole pile of rich theology. So let me just try to simplify it. Let me use a vehicle analogy. That God's love prompted our faith in Jesus reminds me of a battery boost on a cold winter's morning. So the other day, uh, maybe it's a month ago now, but remember when it was minus 43, right? We were frozen in for a while. Well, of course, uh, one of my neighbors uh, knocked on my door 
and to start her dead car. So I took my charge battery and connected it to the dead battery in her car. Uh, another good neighbor came on the scene, and he made sure the cables were all connected as I crawled behind the wheel. And the energy of the good battery flowed into the dead battery, right? Completely invisible, but we know it happened. Then I turned the key, and eventually, after a few you know, flickers and starts and stop, the engine fired up. It was wonderful. On a side note, I got free cookies and hot chocolate and a thank you note the next day. But anyway, think about being elected or chosen, not as God forcing you to believe, but rather his loving initiative, like the life of a battery flowing into you mysteriously. The flow of God's love prompted your faith, like turning the key, responding to God's loving initiative by your own will. He doesn't bypass us. He works with us. But he prompts even your faith to come alive. So next time you think about election or being chosen, don't view it as this, you know, intimidating, impossible doctrine. Because, you know, people debate about this one, right? But this incredible source of joy and comfort that God is at work in you. And he provides everything you need for a godly life. And he prompted you and he boosted your faith and bringing new life into you, giving you his power and strength. And it's an awesome privilege to be called chosen. I think that's what Peter is getting at. Hey, you folks living through tough times, don't forget your chosenness through Jesus Christ. In the next verse, he talks about being chosen now in three parts. So verse 2, he expands the significance of being chosen. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Did I spell that wrong? Whatever. Obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, as I mentioned, these Christians are not living in easy times. All of them probably felt like square pegs in round holes living in Asia Minor. And I think we as Christians may be beginning to feel that way sometimes. But due to their faith in Jesus... Guess what? Their lives got harder, not easier. Is that reverse to what you were taught? Believe in Jesus, your life gets better? Well, in a sense, it does. But sometimes in our world, it's going to get tougher. Reality check. But what does Peter do to encourage them? He takes them deeper into the wonder of of being chosen by God. So we find three parts. In each part, we significantly find three parts of the Trinity. So in every part, you're surrounded by God. So first of all, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is our Father. 
By calling God our Father, this is personal language. He is Abba Father. He's a loving Father. Jesus called God his Father, so can we, because of our faith in Jesus. Furthermore, he is God the Father who has foreknowledge. That means that God the Father graciously chose us according to his plan and purpose long before the earth was even created. Paul talks about it, that as well, right? It's one of these mind-blowing truths. But it's supposed to encourage us. The focus is on God's initiative, his divine initiative which to me speaks of the fact that God is not passive, standing in the heavens, doing nothing. He is active, and he is caring. And he has this incredible vision, looking far, far ahead to bring people humanity, meaning, and purpose, because he knows the conditions that we live in. And so thank God that he has foreknowledge. Someone is in control, and God is in control. He is the foundation of our hope. No matter what is happening in our world, God our Father knows what's going to happen ahead of time. He is in complete control. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Second, we are chosen by the blessing of the Spirit, or the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, Peter is speaking about the evidence of being God's chosen. The Spirit is, of course, the Holy Spirit. When you heard the good news of Jesus first, it was through the invisible work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm not sure if you remember that. Maybe you were a child, maybe you were an adult. But yes, it was the Spirit of God working in your life and converting you to Jesus. It was through the Spirit we became blessed, holy people. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we are suddenly morally superior to anyone else, but that we were brought near and together into God's holy family. Because of Christ, we are now set apart for God's special purposes. We're unique. We're God's chosen. We're set apart with a plan, with a mission. And he fills you up and he sends you out to make a difference in your world. Again, that's an identity word, which speaks so much about why you're here. As God's representative, filled by the Holy Spirit, growing in righteousness to make a difference in our world. And then, thirdly, we are chosen for obedience and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit has a specified goal, and that is for obedience. God's action produced a response in believers. We turn from our selfish ways And we submit to the call of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we are cleansed, as Peter says, through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So once again, 
What's Peter doing? He's borrowing Old Testament vocabulary. In the Old Testament, blood was sprinkled on God's covenant people after they accepted the Mount Sinai covenant with a pledge of obedience. So it all goes together, right? So in a similar way, we who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ have been brought into a new covenant with God based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin. Again, this is who we are. We are forgiven people. We are a cleansed people into a new covenant under the lordship of Jesus Christ leading to an obedient life. So all of these things, the sanctifying work of of the Spirit, our obedience, the cleansing of sins through Christ, was a result of God's foreknowledge, His plan way ahead of time. And so being chosen is this gigantic piece of your identity. We've got to remember that. We are chosen. We can't take it as a matter of arrogance. I'm better than you. But something to give glory to God for. To worship him. And God's mark on us is the gift of the spirit which says we belong to God through Jesus Christ. That's our identity. Now, we mentioned this word, but what about exiles? Do you like being called an exile? I mean, it doesn't sound very glorious, does it? Right? But this is what Peter uses. He says, we're chosen exiles. How does that have to do with our identity? Now, as I mentioned, other words are used in English to explain this unique word. Um, strangers, aliens. How do you like that one? Sounds Martian-like. Sojourners, um, resident aliens. I, that's, that's, I like that one. Resident aliens. Now, whatever word you use in English, Peter, like I mentioned, is borrowing, borrowing another Old Testament word that recalls the history of Israel who were once exiles. I mean, they were literally temporary resident aliens living in Babylon for a time, for example, right? But Peter is thinking about God's forgiven people. We're not in exile because, exile because of sin. We're living in exile because we're uniquely Christian. Followers of Jesus were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were suffering persecution of various kinds because of their faith in Jesus. It's all because of their faith in Jesus. If they just kind of, you know, lived like the rest of the world, I suppose they wouldn't be persecuted. And so it would be a very easy temptation, right? Just kind of fit in with the mold of the culture and all will be good. But no, God says, no, you are my exiles because you're uniquely different. All of Daniel's stories came from this time in exile, right? So that's another wonderful book, you know, I love to preach on. Um, 
that speaks about living faithful lives in a pagan world. Same, exact same thing. Technically, in Peter's world, a temporary resident or foreigner is actually one who, is, who lives in a given place that has no legal rights or protection. Okay, so that's literally that's what it means. And so they were actual foreigners, right, living in the Roman Empire. And so some scholars, I have to mention this, that there's not a, few, not a lot of them, I respect them, but they take this word literally. So they view that these are actual, you know, resident aliens um, within Asia Minor. But um, I take it, and most authors take it, the word exile, as a metaphor. Okay? So I'm, I'm willing to, to believe that I'm sure there were, in a sense, resident aliens, foreigners, and exile in a literal sense. But I think it's a metaphor here. So, um, English lesson, what is a metaphor? Okay? So let me give you an example. Sometimes we say that Jesus is the rock of my salvation. Right? That's, that's a metaphor. So, question. Maybe over here. Is Jesus literally a rock? No. But the Bible says he is a rock. Right? Right? <laughs> but it's a metaphor because Jesus isn't a rock, really. You know, he's not literally a rock. But it's simply saying something about his character. He is the rock of my salvation. He is a strong foundation. So when we use the word exiles in 1 Peter, he is referring to Christians living in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire who were like exiles and foreigners because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have to tease out the meaning of what does he mean by that, right? If it's a metaphor, what does he mean by exiles? Well, they are, in a sense, spiritual foreigners who, not, who are not associated with the values and cultures of that world. Okay? They're living against the grain of the values of the pagan Roman culture. And it doesn't change for us today, does it? Right? We are exiles living according to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our values that we live by are according to the values of Jesus Christ and not the values of our culture. Right? So that's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, we talked about this last week, you know, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, Paul was literally a Roman citizen. He tells us that. He was a Jew, but he was actually a Roman citizen as well. But he says this, using metaphoric language, Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I teach through 1 Peter, I will use exile as a metaphor. And having said this, I'm willing to believe that perhaps that some people that Peter were addressing were literally socially marginalized people. And there were probably people who were not citizens of Rome that were Christians. But most of the people, I understand, are Gentiles, probably because 
probably raised right in Asia Minor who became Christians. And Peter's focus is on Christians and our true identity while living in this world. So in Jesus Christ, we are not of this world, even though we are placed in this world. Jesus bought us out and brought us out of the world's godless system and created a whole new kingdom or a whole new invisible nation. And we are believers are to be like resident aliens, strangers in the world, because our real identity is found in being chosen by God as his faithful witnesses. First Peter 2.11 makes this very clear. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there it is again, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are exiles living different lives. Now, my own background actually helps me understand the significance of being an alien in a metaphoric sense. And as you know, I grew up as a missionary kid in Japan for most of my childhood and right into high school. And when we lived in Japan, um, uh, we were Canadians and working in a foreign country. And... uh, and I knew, of course, that one day after I graduated from high school, I would simply return to Canada, right? Because we were Canadian. And I had a daily reminder that I was a foreigner in Japan. As a foreigner in Japan, you had to carry what, they, what is literally called an alien registration. It's, it's a kind of a goofy name. It's a stamp right on the book. Alien registration. It's a small little brown book. And it had my personal information my photo, my fingerprints, all right? And you talk about rights and all that kind of stuff in Japan. No, you put your fingerprint right there, hello, right? And, uh, and the booklet was basically saying, you are an alien in this country, and we need you to carry this alien registration in your pocket all the time. So, I mean, I got used to it, but I think when we became maybe teenagers, we had to carry this in our pocket, just this little book, slipping it every morning, you know? I'm surprised I didn't lose it. I mean, I was a teenager, goodness sakes. But the booklet was simply saying, you are an alien in this country. And don't forget it, right? Don't forget it. And so as I put this alien registration in my pocket, it was this daily reminder. I thought about that. I said, you know, I get it. I get it. Every day when we wake up, you really have to know your real identity. Hopefully you don't have to put a pocketbook in your pocket to remind you. But you have the truth of being God's chosen people. This metaphor as exiles reminds me who I really am, who you really are as being chosen ones through Jesus Christ in this world. And so we are aliens, we are exiles because of our identity 
as people who have responded to the chosenness of God upon our lives and placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It changes everything, folks, about you. But let us all remember, as the going gets tough, we are never abandoned exiles, right? That's where the discouragement factor can creep in, where people fall away because they don't like the hassle. They want to be in the crowd where they're not made fun of or thought to think that you're weird. We want to be accepted. But Peter reminds us, you got to know who you are. You are people of Jesus Christ. You're, exile, you're chosen exiles, chosen by God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ for his good and perfect purposes in this world. Yes, we have a mission. We are messengers who belong to God. This is who we are. And someday, in a time we don't know when, Jesus is going to return to all who remain faithful. And we will reach our final home. The fulfillment of our real identity. Let's pray. Lord, we do live in a different era than 1967. But most of all, Lord, I pray that we as your people will will understand no matter what era we live in, no matter what the conditions are in our culture, may we understand our chosenness in Jesus Christ. That we are, even though scattered throughout this globe as your followers, even as exiles, maybe not recognized, but that's okay because you recognize us as your children, being chosen by God through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, fill us and encourage us. May we understand who we really are through Jesus Christ. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing this last song. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I Just this. 
sin runs deep, your grace is more, your grace is found, is where you are, and where you are, Lord, I am free, holy in me and where you are Lord I am free holiness is Christ in me Lord I need you oh I my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay and I cannot stand or fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Yeah, you are. And Lord, I need. 